Father in heaven, what a blessing it is to be able to come together to study Your Word tonight. Lord, we thank You that You've given us the Bible that gives us such a clear picture of who Jesus is. Lord, we're thankful for the book of Revelation that's clearly just a revelation of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just pray that You would help us to understand Your words this evening. Father, as we look at this important theme of why is there pain and suffering in this world, we pray that You would, through Your Holy Spirit, explain to our hearts the truths of Scripture. And Lord, we just ask that You would help these things to be clear and concise, that Jesus could be lifted up. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's a story of a man by the name of Kevin Carter, and Kevin Carter was a photojournalist who took an award-winning photo, and the photo was this one. Many of you may have seen this before, and it was of a starving girl in South Sudan. Now, shortly after this was featured in Time magazine, he won an award for this photo, but just a few days after that, Kevin committed suicide. Now, people couldn't imagine why an award-winning photographer would be taking his own life, but notice what part of his suicide note said. He says, I'm haunted by the vivid memories of killing and corpses and anger and pain, of starving or wounded children of trigger-happy madmen, often police or killer executioners. I am really, really sorry. The pain of life overrides the joy to the point that joy does not exist for me. You see, Kevin, as he was exposed to all the suffering that was going on in the world at that time, he wondered, why is it possible for all of these atrocities to be happening? And if life is this bad, then I don't want anything to do with it. I remember during 2005, I was visiting Uganda, and I was there for a month, and during that time, there was a, a movement going through Uganda called the Lord's Resistance Army. I don't know if any of you remember that or are familiar with it. And the Lord's Resistance Army would go through villages and wipe out all families in genocide form, and I remember meeting young men and young women who were only in their teens who had no family left because they were killed in the genocide. During those times, I began to ask questions. If God is so good, why is this world so bad? How can a God of love, if the Bible tells us that God is loving and God is kind and God is all-powerful, then why does God allow these types of things to happen in the world? You know, I would say that the number one reason why people are atheist or agnostic today is not due to a lack of evidence that God exists, but to a large degree, many atheists have admitted that the reason why they don't believe in God is because they don't believe that there could be a God who is so cruel who would allow these things in the world to continue to go on. I was at, the, I was at a funeral yesterday. I was asked to do the funeral of a man who was 65 years old. He had suffered through diabetes for most of his life. He was diagnosed as a child. He had spent the last multiple years of his life, over a decade, bound to his house because of his health conditions. And the main question that everyone has at a funeral like that is if God is good, why are these things taking place? Now this, this afternoon and this evening, we're going to be attempting to look through Scripture, why would God allow these things to happen? And we're going to see that Revelation gives us a clear understanding of these things. Oftentimes, many people have such a twisted picture of God, and it's captured by this cartoon here, where a man is walking down the street, and there's a piano hanging over his head, and God's getting ready to hit a button that says smite. And you get this idea, and some people think it's comical that God is just out there to get them, and he's going to strike them with a lightning bolt. And I can tell you that if God was like that, I would probably be an atheist too. I remember going into a clothing store, and I was looking for a shirt in Tempe, Arizona when I lived there, and as I was looking in the store, there was a guy who was helping me, and the guy came up, and we talked a little bit. And as I was walking out of the store, I reached into my pocket, and I just handed him a little Bible track. And the guy looked at the track. He's my age, and looked a little bit confused, and he just handed it back to me and said, no, I, I, I don't believe in God. And I just said, well, you know, I wouldn't believe in God either if I saw him like you did. He said, what do you mean if I saw him like you did? I said, well, I don't believe that God's a vengeful God who wants nothing good for his people and allows all these atrocities to happen and kind of went through the list of what he assumed God would be. And he said, well, what is God like then? 
They said, well, this is why we need the tract, right? And we're going to understand tonight that many of us might have a skewed picture of who God is. And we're actually going to see this throughout the series of Revelation is the clearest book of helping us to re-understand who God truly is. That's why it calls it the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And this evening, we're going to be looking at a passage of, of Scripture, actually several passages of Scripture, that make it clear about the character of God trying to answer the question, if God is all loving, if God is all good, then why do bad things happen in this world? Now, before we get into the study too far, it's best to start at the beginning of the book. Would you agree? How many of you ever buy a book from the bookstore and go straight to the last chapter? Now, I don't want you to show your hands because I know there are some people who do that. But what's helpful many times is to open to the opening chapters of Scripture to realize what God's ideal for humanity was. And I just want to do a quick survey with you through the first chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to be, begin in verse 1, and these are familiar verses to many of us, the creation story. And I want you to tell me if you realize the repeating word that's used at the end of each one of these passages that we read. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, so, that, so God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Skip down to verse 10 with me. And God called the dry land earth, and gathering together of the waters, he called seas. And God saw that it was what? Good. Now notice verse 12. And the, eve, and the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was what? Good. Now notice just a couple more passages. Verse 16. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also, and God sent them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. Now notice the last passage here, the last verse of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, Then God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was what? Very good. Now do you guys notice the pattern there? God creates something, and it's good. God creates the next day, and as he steps back at the end of that day, he looks on it, and everyone looking around says that it was good. And he gets all the way to day number five, and everything that he creates is good. And now, when did God put man into the garden? Was it before he created a good earth? No, you see, God prepared a perfect place for us to dwell, and once everything was good... Then you see that God creates man and puts him on the earth. And then after that happened, God says that it's very good. Now I want to ask you a question. If all that you had in the Bible was Genesis chapter 1, would you think that God wanted good or bad things for his people? Good, right? We see it repeated over and over again. How many times can the Bible writer tell us that everything that God made for us was good? There's another passage of Scripture, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, and it says, This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, that God is what? Light, and in Him is no darkness at all. You know, some, some people have this idea of the yin-yang theory of God. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? You know, the yin-yang, if any of you have ever looked at them, I might have, should have put a picture up here, but you have half of it that's black and half of it that's white, Right? And you have this sort of mixing of the two. And people believe that you have to have a little bit of evil and a little bit of good in order to really have balance in the universe. That's kind of the theory behind it. And some people think that this is about God. You know, sure, God created everything good, but maybe there's a little bit of evil in him as well that allows the earth to have this proper balance because we couldn't appreciate good without evil. Well, is that what the Bible tells us? 
It tells us that in God there is only light. Now in 1 John chapter 1 here, constantly referring to light is that God doesn't know sin. He doesn't know evil. But darkness is all the evil things of this world. And God, when He's telling us about Him in John, as He's describing the one that He knew so well, He says, in God there's no darkness at all. Now we realize that through these passages it hasn't really helped us with our question. We wonder if God is good, if He created everything good, and if God is light and in Him there's no darkness at all, then who is responsible for all of the suffering that we see in the world today? Now I'm thankful for the parables of Jesus that make things clear to us. We're doing this parable, we'll read this parable as a backdrop to what we're getting ready to read in Revelation. Matthew chapter 13, for those of you who have your Bibles with you, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives us a parable that we're going to find very helpful in understanding this idea of if God is good, why is this world so bad? And why hasn't God done something about the evil that we're facing? These are questions that we're looking at. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. Notice what Jesus says here. It says, Another parable He put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed what type of seed? Good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the grain had sprouted and produced the crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Notice what Jesus' response is in verse 28. Jesus says, an enemy has what? Done this. You see, when Jesus is asked the question by His disciples and, and giving them the parable of understanding what the kingdom of God is like, He says, hey, the kingdom of God is like a man who went to go sow good seed. And now, what does all of this represent? Notice verse 36. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 36. Some of us might be reading that parable and think, what does that have to do with this question, just like the disciples? But notice Jesus gives us an explanation. Matthew chapter 13, verse 36, it says, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And His disciples came to Him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is who? The Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is who? The devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So as we plug these things back into the parable that Jesus just told us, is there's a man who went and sowed good seed in his field. Who is that man sowing the good seed? It tells us that that's Jesus, right? And we realize that Jesus is the one who is active in creation and creating this world that we just read about in Genesis chapter 1. And it tells us what type of things was He creating? Good or bad things? Good things. But as people slept, right? There's this imagery of sleeping. How much do you understand when you're asleep of the outside world? Not very much, right? Unless you're a light sleeper, then you wake up. But we realize when you're asleep, it's imperceptible the things that are happening around you. And we see that Jesus sowed good seed, that He created good things in this world, but while no one could tell how it exactly happened, there started to be sprouts of weeds that were coming up. Now, what did it say that the, the weeds represented? It says in verse 38 that it's the sons of the wicked one, right? And we're told that the one who is sowing that evil or those who are sowing the seeds of wickedness was only one person was responsible for that and that was the man, the devil. Now we're going to get into this parable a little bit, get, uh, a little bit later to realize the ending that Jesus gives to us and it gives us a clearer understanding of why Jesus didn't just immediately wipe this out. But we realize when Jesus is trying to explain why bad things happen to good people, and why if there's a good God, why are there evil things happening? Jesus doesn't say, you know, the reason why you're suffering today is because I'm doing that to you. But He says the reason why there's pain and suffering on earth today is because there is a devil who is active in persecuting all of those who are alive on this earth. Now when we often think of the devil, we think of someone like this, right? 
Someone there with a pitchfork sitting in the center of the earth, you know, boiling people and putting them over the roaster or whatever your picture of the devil is. But what we're going to realize this evening is that the Bible gives us a very interesting insight into the fall of Satan and the origin of evil and sin. Because people say, well, if God allowed Satan to do this, did God create the devil? Did God create someone who is going to be so evil and wicked to us all? This evening, we're going to be looking at the explanation that the Bible gives that it was never God's plan that evil would exist, but it was simply the outgrowth of freedom of choice. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7, it says, And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was the place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called who? The devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And he was cast to this earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now from this passage of Scripture, what do we find out about Satan? It tells us that there was a war in what location? In Iraq? In Afghanistan? No, no, no. It tells us that there is a war that first started in heaven. Now, how many of you, is it hard for you to imagine that there was ever a war going on in heaven? I mean, you think of heaven, it's a perfect place, it's a sinless place, it's a place where you think everyone would be happy. Why is it that there would ever be a war? Well, we're going to look at this this evening of why the Bible tells us that this war took place and a little more of the details. Now, Revelation chapter 12 told us that there was a war in heaven and that there were two main parties involved. One was Michael and his angels, right? And you can look in Jude chapter 1 verse 9 that Michael is the archangel, which in Greek means the ruler of the angels. In other words, it was Jesus himself. As you look at Michael throughout scripture, you can realize that it was God himself in symbolic language, right? Michael and his angels fought, and who were they fighting against? It said the dragon. Now, was it literally a dragon? No, no, no. It went on to explain the symbolic language there, and it was God fighting against the people of Satan who had aligned themselves with him. Now there came a point during the war where God said enough is enough, but this evening what we want to do is try to understand what was going on in this war. Was it a, a battle of fists, or was there something different that took place? Turn with me to Ezekiel this evening, and we're going to be trying to find out what it is that caused this battle in heaven. Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 11. We remember last night we talked about Revelation is the last chapter of the Bible. And if it's the last chapter of the Bible or the last chapter of the book, we have to understand the whole book in order to understand Revelation, right? We see the theme coming out of a war in heaven, but we realize that Ezekiel 28 is what gives us a clearer understanding of what took place in this war. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 11 tells us, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Now some of you might be thinking, why in the world are we reading about what God says to the king of Tyre when we're discussing the battle that went on in heaven between Satan and God? Well, notice with me, and I would propose that the person who God is talking about is the power that was actually motivating and prompting the king of Tyre to carry out his evil deeds. God was not specifically just talking to the king of Tyre, even though he was a wretched man that you can read about in Scripture. But you realize that God was talking to the power that was actuating his motive. Now we understand this as Christians, that we're either, either possessed by the Spirit of God, or we're possessed by the Spirit of the world, or the Spirit of Satan. And as you look, notice what it does to describe the king of Tyre to show us that it's specifically describing Satan, the power that was actuating him, and not just the king himself. Notice it continues. Talking about this person, it says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. I want to ask you a question. How many people were in the garden of Eden that the Bible tells us about? There was Adam, there was Eve, 
Now, there's some people we don't naturally think about. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that God was in the garden, right? That he was walking with them as he ushered them out of the garden. And then there's another one, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, that came in a different form, and he was the form of a serpent, right? Now, we know in Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent was Satan, right? They're tempting Eve. Now, if we only have four people to choose from, and this person that's being described in Ezekiel is said to have been in the Garden of Eden, is this person describing Adam, Eve, God, or Satan? Well, what we're naturally going to find out is that this is describing the fall of Lucifer out of heaven. Notice it says that you were in Eden, the Garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering. The sardas, the topaz, and diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. You were the anointed, what is that word? Cherub who covers. Now what's a cherub? It's an angel, right? It's just another word for an angel. And it says, I established you on the holy mountain of God. Now we know that God the Father is not an angel, right? And it couldn't have been Adam and Eve. They weren't angels. The only other person described who was in the Garden of Eden was Lucifer himself. And here we have that God is telling us about Lucifer and his fall. And notice how he started the last verse. He says that you were perfect, right? You were the seal of perfection. In other words, if I was going to show someone who was perfect and model them before the universe, I would have chosen you. You see, you were perfect in all of your ways. And then it even gives us the position that Lucifer held in heaven before he fell. It says that you were the anointed cherub who covers. Now to understand this, we already talked about last night, that the setting of Revelation is the setting of the sanctuary. Remember we talked about that in one of the seven keys to understanding Bible prophecy? And what we're going to see tonight, and to understand what the cherub was, we have to understand a little bit about the Israel sanctuary and the sanctuary that's in heaven. Now, in heaven, or in the sanctuary that God told Moses to make in the wilderness, there was three main compartments in it, right? There was the courtyard, there was the holy place, and there was the most holy place. Many of you are familiar with this, as you've read through Exodus and Leviticus and some of those places. And you notice that the the sacrifice would take place in the courtyard, and then the priest's work would mainly take place in the holy place, and then the high priest would go into the most holy place once a year. Now, the most holy place, there was a really special piece of furniture in there called the Ark of the Covenant, which is pictured here. It's this, this box that, that inside was the law of God, Aaron's rod that budded in a, a jar of manna. And then on top, there were two angels, just like you see here. And in the middle, you can read about this in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 18 to 22, that between the angels that were covering They called it the mercy seat. You see, the justice of the law of God was underneath, but mercy was on top, and we know that Jesus, when he came, he blended justice and mercy together, right? Righteousness and peace kissed one another. And we see that as they're there, and the angels are covering, that it said that God himself, when he was going to be in his temple, he would be dwelling between the two angels on top of the mercy seat in what they call the Shekinah glory. That's what God called it. Now, when we understand this, this gives us a picture of what the throne room of heaven is like. In other words, when God takes a seat in heaven, he modeled it after the sanctuary, and he said that there's two angels that were covering him. And when we think about the description that God gives us of Lucifer before his fall in heaven, is that he was one of the anointed angels who did what? Covered. Now, how many other angels were there? Just one, right? Now, can you think of a much higher position in heaven than being right there at the right hand or left hand of God at his throne? Here's this position that Satan held before his fall. It says that he was the anointed cherub who covered. Now, notice the the passage continues on. It says you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones and you were what? Perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. Now this is just a quick recap of what we just read in this passage. We're looking at Lucifer's fall, but we want to understand who he was. Number one is that Lucifer was a created being. In other words, God created him just like he created all of the other angels, right? Isn't that what it just said in the last verse? 
Now, notice what it says, that God didn't create Lucifer as the devil. God didn't create him knowing that he would be the next Hitler type or even worse, but God created Lucifer perfect. You see, Lucifer was just like every other angel in heaven. There was no sin there. And God created him just to love God, and there was no manufactured defect that caused Lucifer to become what we know now as the devil. Now it continues on, and we see that he was the covering cherub. He was right next to God. He saw the glory of God and the character of God clearer than anyone else was able to. But notice the fourth point. What is the turning point in the passage of Ezekiel chapter 28? It says that you were perfect in all of your ways until what took place? Verse 15. Till iniquity was found where? In you. Now, what's iniquity? That's not a word we use every day, right? Sin, right? Iniquity is just another word for sin. Now, the, the parable that Jesus gave is that he was sowing seed, and while men slept, there were these tares that started to come up, but it was, it was imperceptible, right? Everyone was sleeping. They couldn't see how it happened. And just when God's describing the fall in heaven, he doesn't say, well, one, two, three, this is how Lucifer fell. But somehow, in Lucifer's heart, there became a desire for him to go against God and to sin instead of living in perfect harmony with him. Now, in order to understand what Lucifer did a little bit better, we have to understand what is sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 tells us that sin is the transgression of the law. Now you see, there came a point where Lucifer looked at God. And we know that one of the commandments of God is thou shall not have any other gods before me, right? And Lucifer said, well, why is it that he has to be God? Maybe I can do it my own way. And Lucifer starts to go against the law of God, which God gave to set up boundaries of peace. And in stepping outside of those bounds, iniquity was found in him. Now this isn't the only passage that we have. Notice it continues on, Ezekiel chapter 28 and this is really interesting. Verse 16. It says, By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within. And you did what? Sin, right? He said you had iniquity was found in you. Now he just flat out says it. You sinned, and therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Now isn't it interesting that when describing this, God says, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence. Now, does anyone have a passage or a version of Scripture that says something different than trading? I think the King James says trafficking, right? And some of you might have something that says a little bit different. But what's interesting to note is the idea of trading or trafficking is this idea to go around and sell like a merchant, right? That's what you would nat naturally think it was. So by the, by the abundance of your merchant sales, you have, what, become filled with violence. Well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. What was, was he selling, you know, going around selling vacuums for Kirby? I mean, what was, what was Satan doing that led to this fall? Well, what's interesting is the same root word that's used for the word trading is the same word that comes out of gossip or backbiting. You see, Satan started going around and he was trafficking this idea of gossip about God. Now, something that's fascinating to note about this is that the word diablos in Greek for, for Satan actually means one who is an accuser. And that's where we get this idea of Satan. First, he started off in heaven by the abundance of his accusations. And who was he accusing? He wasn't accusing the other angels. He started accusing God of being unfair and unjust. Notice we don't have to continue to guess at this. It's not just my theory, but notice what the Bible continues on to talk about. It says that your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of splendor. And as Satan there started getting so proud of himself, he really thought, well, why do I have to respect God and honor him so much? I'm pretty good. I mean, has anyone looked at the mirror? I mean, I'm, I'm really beautiful and I'm pretty talented. And he started to esteem himself much more highly than he should, and he started to traffic this idea around with the other angels. 
Now, notice with me what Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14 is kind of the companion to Ezekiel chapter 28 in describing the fall of Lucifer. Ezekiel chapter 28 tells us that Lucifer fell and that he was trafficking something, but Isaiah chapter 14 tells us exactly what Lucifer was trafficking. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. Notice what the Bible says. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nation. For you have said in your heart, right? Isn't this what it said? Until iniquity was found in him. There's this idea of it's in his heart that I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the, on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud and I will be like the what? Most high. Who's he talking about? Who's the most high? God. Now can you imagine this? The very nearest person to Jesus or God himself was Lucifer and some other angel. And as Lucifer was there and seeing the position that God had, he started to think, you know, I really want that position. I want what God has, and as an angel, I can't get it. And so I need to get everyone else to start supporting this idea. Now we realize that through the fall of Lucifer in Revelation, it tells us that he drew a third of the stars with his tail, and we can see that the stars represent angels in Scripture, and that through Lucifer's gossiping and trading that we hear about in Ezekiel chapter 28, a third of the angels of heaven are cast out. You see, Satan had an issue, and his issue was with God. Satan wanted the honor and the respect that only God could get, and he knew that he had to convince other people to get it. Now, I want to ask you a question. What is it that God gets that an angel cannot? Is there something that God in his position can receive that an angel can't? Now, I know that's a very generic question. Notice this passage of Scripture. We're going to allow Revelation 22 to answer it. Revelation 22 and verse 8. Now, notice the sequence of events that happens here that John describes. Now, I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I saw, and when I heard and saw, I fell down and did what? I worship before the feet of who? The angel. Okay, here's John. He's, he's blown away by the fact the angel just told him that Jesus is coming soon and he falls down and starts to worship this angel who showed me these things. Now notice the response of the angel. Then he, the angel, said to me, see that you do not do what? That. And that, that was referring to the worshiping that John was giving to this angel, right? And why is it that John was not supposed to worship this angel? For I am your fellow servant of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. And then what's the injunction there at the end? Worship God. You see, there's only one person in this world who deserves worship. And who is that? It's God himself. And as Lucifer is seeing the adoration of the angels towards God, he says, you know, I want that for myself. I want to get the honor that God deserves and take that because I'm a pretty good person. And as he's trafficking this idea, Lucifer finally comes up with the fact that, you know what, I need to be in the place of the Most High. That I, like God as well, can receive worship for myself. Now we're going to talk about this in the next following nights, is how do we worship God? Are there things in our lives that we do where we make choices to either worship God or worship Satan? Sometimes, you know, Satan obviously knows that many of us aren't dumb enough if he were to come here and say, I'm Lucifer, worship me, that we would just fall on our face and worship him, right? We're Christians. We, we wouldn't do something like that. But we realize that Lucifer knew by usurping the power that God had and the, the authority of God's law that he could cause the world to start to worship Satan instead of worshiping God. Now we're going to talk about that in two of the following nights, so make sure not to miss that. 
But we realize that as we've looked here in Revelation, right, there's a war in heaven. There's this fallout. We realize it's not a war of, of fists and punching and pushing, but it's a war of words, right? And a war of ideology. And finally it comes to the point where God says, you know what, Lucifer? If you want to be God, and if you want to ignore all my, my, my regulations and best way and my government, then you can go and take those with you who are going to follow you. And we see that this is exactly what happened. And this is what Revelation describes, is that Lucifer then was cast out of heaven, and where did he go? Do you remember what Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 said? It says he was cast to the earth. Now some of you might be saying, that's really unfair. Why didn't Lucifer get cast somewhere else, like Pluto? You know, that would be a little more fitting. But we'll notice, we're going to answer that question. And when Lucifer is cast to the earth, Revelation gives us a picture of the very thing that Lucifer is seeking. Now before we look at that picture in Revelation, we can see very clearly what Lucifer is seeking, right? Many of you remember or are familiar with the passage of Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Are you familiar with that? You know, Jesus is baptized, and after his baptism, it says he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And for 40 days and nights, Jesus is fasting. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thankful Jesus was able to do that, and we don't have to do that, right? And Jesus was there fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and as a result of that, Lucifer starts to come to him and tempt Jesus, right? And he says, you know, if, if you're really God, why don't you let these stones be made into what? bread. And then he goes through all these different temptations, takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, if you bow down and do what? Worship me, I'll give you everything that you see. You see, Lucifer finally came out and just, he couldn't convince God to worship him in any other way by indirectly doing it. But he finally got to the point of just saying, hey, look, Jesus, I want your worship. And this is what I'm here for. Now, we notice that Satan still has the same object that he did with Jesus 2,000 years ago. But notice what Revelation chapter 13 tells us of how he's going to do this in the last days. This is fascinating. Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Revelation chapter 13, you see Lucifer isn't just coming to us today and saying, bow down and worship me like he did to Jesus at the last temptation. But notice what he does in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1. It says, then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I see a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads the name, uh, a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his what? His power, his throne, and great authority. Now who is the dragon? We saw in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, that the dragon was Satan, right? So in the last days, God is describing that Satan is going to set up a system in which he gives it power, he gives it authority, right? A throne and great authority. Now, notice what happens. Satan sets up this system, and he's standing off, and he knows that he's really supporting that, and he continues on, and he says, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in a later night. And all the world did what? Marveled and followed the beast. You see, Lucifer wanted worship in heaven. He knew that he would have to be pretty crafty in order to get a bunch of people to worship him here on this earth. And so what he does is he sets up this false system in which he gives it his power, his authority, and when people worship or worship that system or God through that system, who is receiving the worship indirectly? Satan. And this is what we see as Satan's great deception in the last days. And it says, so they worship the dragon, who is Satan, who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to make war with him? Now you see, this is what we're going to be talking about in some of the later nights, really getting into Revelation chapter 13. But in order to understand this, that's why we're going through the sequences that we are. Is we have to understand that Satan is desiring worship from the very beginning of his fall. He desired it in heaven. He desired it when he came to this earth in the Garden of Eden. And we see him dealing with Adam and Eve on that fact. We see him dealing with Jesus on that. And in the last days, has his tactic changed at all? 
Is he looking for anything different? No, he wants the exact same thing he always had, and that was the allegiance that only we could give to him that really belongs to God. Now we recognize that God is allowing all of this to happen. In verse 8, it even tells us how prominent this becomes. It says, all who dwell on the earth will do what? Worship Him. Now, is that a pretty broad statement? All who dwell on the earth are going to be worshiping Satan. Now, I'm really thankful that there's a comma after that and it continues on, right? It said, whose names have not been written where? In the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We're going to be looking more at that. Who is this Lamb that is slain that's prominent throughout the book of Revelation? We know that to be Jesus Christ, right? What we're told here is that everyone on earth in the final days of earth's history is going to be worshiping Satan. The only exception are those who are worshiping Jesus, whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to make sure my name is in there, right? By the grace of Jesus, it's only that we have hope in these last days. And we have to recognize, as we read about all these things, and as we see what's going on, there was a war in heaven and how it's transferred to this earth, that we're not innocent bystanders. You see, we're not just looking at the Bible like this lady's watching the television thinking, oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, that's really, that's kind of a neat story. That's, that's interesting facts. I'm glad to hear it. But we realize that instead of being innocent bystanders, we're actually caught right smack dab in the middle of this war. Satan is doing all that he can to pull our allegiance away from God. He doesn't care how he does it. He either makes God look so bad that we want nothing to do with him, or he gives us a different version of God that the God we're worshiping really isn't God at all. Have you ever heard of that before? It's called golden images. They were doing it all the time in the Old Testament. They would make a God after their own likeness and they would start to worship that. Even the golden calf, they thought they were doing that in honor of God, right? In Exodus. But we realized that as they were putting characteristics into God that really were not part of him, that they were indirectly giving Satan the worship that he deserved. That's why in, when God talks about his people in the last days, he talks about a people who have the faith of Jesus. He talks about people who really know what it means to be in connection with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when I read about the deception that Satan's trying to bring on this earth, how many of you think that we need a revelation of Jesus Christ much clearer? And that's why God, in the very closing chapters of the book of the Bible, says, I'm going to give you the clearest revelation of Jesus that I can. Now, it's going to be so clear that I'm going to have to put it in symbols so that it takes a little bit of study. But by studying this, you will be clearly seeing where God is and how to make sure that we're walking with him in these final days of earth's history. Now, as we're wrapping up, notice this next passage. We're reminded of what we've already read before. It says, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole earth. And we realize that he was cast out of heaven. And it says that he was cast to this earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now, notice what it says in verse 12. It says, therefore rejoice, O heavens. Now, why is he saying, therefore rejoice, O heavens? Well, it's not because God's sadistic and is happy about our, you know, turmoil that we're going to be going through, but it's because heaven has finally gotten rid of the problem, right? It's like kicking the bad kid out of school, but sending him out to the other school district. You know, rejoice, Ithaca Public Schools, but then woe to Alma, right? And you realize this is what takes place, is that he kicks him out of heaven, and he says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of where? The earth and the sea. It says, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has how much time? Isn't that what Revelation chapter 1 told us in our first night? That we have a short time, that Jesus is coming soon, that the things of this earth are wrapping up? And he says, hey, beware of this because Satan knows that all too well. Satan knows that he's on a time schedule. And then he has to make sure that he can get all the people he can before time runs out. Satan came down to this earth, and we see this described in Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to take a lot of time in Genesis chapter 3 tonight looking at the inception of sin in this world, but we do want to note a part of it, and we will, we'll pick this up tomorrow in our study. But Genesis chapter 3, and you wonder, well, if Satan is coming down, what are his tactics going to be that will cause us to worship him? Could it be that Satan is going to use the exact same tactics with us that he used with Adam and Eve in the garden. Notice Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, now how many of you, if you just heard a serpent speaking to you, would already be freaked out? Somehow this was normal to Eve, right? So she heard and she said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor do what? Touch it, lest you die. Now, this is pretty clear. Does, does Eve understand what God is asking her to do? God says, hey, I've provided all of these good things for you. I've given you everything. I've supplied for all your needs. Was there a food shortage in the Garden of Eden? No. They have all of these trees, but God says, hey, this one. Just stay away from this one. Now, we're going to be looking at that question. Why did God put that one there, right? But he puts this in the midst of the garden, and he makes it explicitly clear that he says, hey, don't touch that, right? But notice what Satan says in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, what did God say would happen if they went to the tree? They would die. Notice what he says to the woman. You shall not surely die. Now, I don't know about you, but that's just about as blatant lying as you can get. Now, John chapter 8 tells us that Satan is a liar and the father of it. We see the father of this deception. Now, notice what he continues on to say. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, as Lucifer's there with, with Eve in the garden, she says, you want to really know why God says that you can't eat of that tree? It's because he's trying to withhold good things from you. You see, it's a lot more fun. If you would just eat that, you would experience a much greater life than if you would just, you know, stay away from what God's telling you to. God says you'll die. Actually, you won't die you're going to have such a greater experience that you're actually going to become like God. Now, does this sound like temptations we see in the world today? Now, you know, drugs won't actually hurt you, right? They'll actually enhance your life. You'll feel so much better. Have you ever talked to a cocaine addict who was so happy they started? No. There's not this experience of where you continue on and Satan tries to make it look so appealing at at the onset that we desire it. But we realize what Satan was doing was merely taking the thing that God had said to stay away from and now repackaging it to make it look like we were missing out. Now, we're going to notice that Satan has done this to a large degree in the Christian world today. You know, many people say, well, I could never become a Christian because I have to give up X, Y, and Z, you know, and I want to actually be happy and have fun in this world. Now, can anyone tell me that they have such a stale and boring life as a Christian? Okay, don't tell me that. But we realize that as a Christian, you don't have to have a stale and boring life, right? You can have joy. And Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And this is the desire that God has always had for his people. But Lucifer says, you know what? That God guy over there, he's just so messed up. You want nothing to do with him. Just steer clear because he's leading you down a path to utter boredom. You see, he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how he's running. Now, does that sound like the trafficking that was going on in heaven? You know, God doesn't really know what he's doing. I deserve worship. See, if I was your God, I would actually lead you to the right trees. I wouldn't, you know, keep you from that one. And as he takes Eve through this process, what does Eve do? Notice it's so interesting that Eve doesn't say, oh yeah, you're right. God didn't say that. She doesn't have a revelation of God saying something different. But notice in Genesis chapter 3 what takes place. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. You see, Eve put her judgment above the judgment of God. Was it, why did God tell them not to eat of that tree? Was it because the tree was poisonous? Was it because it was going to kill them immediately when they, when they eat into it because it's just this, this terrible concoction of poison? No, no, no. God tells them not to eat of it. It's not because the fruit is bad. Obviously, the fruit looked pretty good, right? It was desirable. It, it looked really nice. But God allowed it to be a test of who do you want to follow? Eve, do you want to follow the things that I freely tell you are going to be best? If not, I want to give you an option to where you don't have to follow me and you can follow your own ways. What's interesting to note is that as God looks onto this earth, 
God is weeping as He sees the suffering that's taking place. Some people have said, well, why didn't God just kill Satan on the very outset of sin? Why didn't God just take him out? Because if, if Satan was, was just so wicked, then maybe God could have just taken him out immediately. But I want to ask you a question. What would happen if God would have just killed Satan immediately once he stirred up this rebellion in heaven and just zapped Satan with lightning and, and took him out? Or what if he would have done the same thing with Eve? Notice, let me, let me give you an analogy that maybe helps you understand that. Imagine that there's someone in the presidential cabinet who starts to say, you know, the president is really just a racist womanizer who wants nothing good for the people and citizens of this country. And you see that broadcasted all over the news today, and this guy's giving the speech, and, and he's going on and on about how terrible the president is. And then the very next morning, the breaking news is that cabinet member was shot. What would you be thinking? Wait, he just blasted the president yesterday, and this morning, someone anonymously shot him, and the FBI has no idea what happened. Yeah, right. Right? And this was staged. This guy was just silenced because he was saying something. And you think, well, why was he being silenced? Maybe what he was saying was true. Maybe the president really is. Now, I'm not talking about the current president, right? This is just an analogy. That maybe the president really is just a racist womanizer who wants nothing good for his citizens. But could it be, if the president just allowed it to play out, that the true motives would come out in the situation? Many parents know this too, that you have to sometimes allow the situation to play out in order for both parties to see what really is fair. You know, this is why God says in the parable that we looked at in Matthew chapter 13, that Notice, go back there with me really quick. When he's talking about the seed that's sowed and, and how he didn't do it, but an enemy had done it while they slept. And there's these weeds coming up and the tares are growing. They start to ask a very interesting question that many of us wish, wished Jesus would have said yes to. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And notice what Jesus says here. We'll start in verse 26 just to get a little bit of the context again. And it says, But when the grain had sprouted, Matthew chapter 13, verse 26, But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares appeared. So the servants, now we were told in the explanation that the servants were the angels, right? They were the reapers, right? And so the servants or the angels come to the owner, which the owner is God Himself. And they said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then do you have tares? Notice the answer of God. He says, An enemy has done this. Now we looked at all of this already. And the servant said to him, Notice what the servant's question is. Do you want us then to go and gather them up? In other words, the angels come to God. This is the parable that we're hearing. Is that the angels come to God and say, Hey God, you, you see all these tares? Didn't you sow good stuff? Yeah, I did do good stuff. Well, can we take out the evil that's now creeping into the world? And what's God's answer? No. But notice he gives an explanation. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. You see, God, as He's looking on to this problem of sin and suffering, and as God saw the rebellion in heaven, we think, well, why would God ever cast Satan to this earth? Why didn't He just put him off in His own corner? Well, because if Satan was going around saying, you know, God is not fair, God is not fair, God is not fair, you shouldn't follow Him, He won't give you the best way of life, and God just goes, zap, what are the other angels going to be thinking? Well, maybe He was on to something. And now, instead of fear, serving God from freedom of choice, they're now serving God out of fear that, man, if I step out of line, He's going to zap me too. And so as He comes to this earth, God doesn't say, hey, I'm going to give you no opportunity to be tempted on this earth. But He valued freedom of choice so much that God said, I'm going to allow Satan to have one tree out of millions. And He's going to have one small opportunity. I'm going to warn you about it. I'm going to do all I can to keep you away from it but I'm going to do my best so that you'll never fall into sin. But I want you to have the opportunity if that's your desire. You see, God is not a God who coerces people into following Him. God is not a God who forces people into obedience, but God is a God who allows us to make free choices. 
And as we came, we realized the choice that Eve made, and it's a choice that has repercussions down through the ages to our day today. And because of the freedom of choice, we realize that sin is in the world. Now, people say, well, why can't God just create beings who would never sin? You know, if God's all-powerful, couldn't He do that? Well, I want to ask you, what do you call a person that has no freedom of choice? A robot, right? And you can find all sorts of interesting robots or a puppet or whatever you want to, and if God's just up there and we don't really have a choice in what we're doing and He's just kind of directing our lives, I mean, what kind of God is that? You know, what's very interesting is I have a robot here on the platform, and it's called my computer, right? It just doesn't have feet and legs and all those things. But we realize that this is a robot and a machine just like any other robot they would see in a museum. And I can program my robot or my computer to say I love you every morning when I wake up. You really can. Did you know that? It's kind of weird. People just, I, I guess, don't have enough love in their lives. And so you program it, and you say, I love you every morning. And every morning when you wake up, it'll say, I love you, Taylor. You know, and every time it goes through that. Now, does that give you warm fuzzies when you hear it say that to you? No, because it's, I, I made you say that, right? I, you didn't have any choice in that. I just forced you to say what I wanted you to say. Now, this is why God couldn't make us people who would just do whatever God said. He wanted us to be free moral agents to have freedom of choice. Now, I know that sin and evil is a bad thing, but I am so thankful that God allowed it for the sake of me not being a robot. But God wanted us to be able to have the freedom to either choose to follow Him or choose to follow Satan. You see, as it's played out for the last 6,000 years, we can see what Satan's all about. We can see the pain and the suffering in this world, and we can't blame it on God because it's not God's fault. We read, read the first two chapters of Job. And when Job is talking about all the terrible things that happened to him, why did they happen to him? Because it says very explicitly that Satan was the one afflicting Job. God wanted nothing to do with that. God didn't want that to happen, but he allowed it to happen just so that Satan would be proved wrong. And as we're going through all this, you might say, well, are we just a bunch of mice, you know, through this experiment to see if God's really fair? You know, does God really care that I'm going through this? Well, I can tell you that God values us more than anything else. And as he sees the choices that we make, it pains his heart. But at the end of the day, he knew that he couldn't force us to do anything. How many of you parents have just forced your children to do whatever you want, and it turned out very well? It doesn't work that way, right? You know, my wife and I are reading parenting books as we're going into that, and I haven't seen that. You know, chain them to the chair and just take them wherever you want them and don't let them do it. You know, that's not part of the parenting stuff. Just like you wouldn't marry someone like in this scenario, right? You, you don't have love in that situation. But you realize that God had to give freedom of choice because love is the foundation of God's government. Do you agree with that? It tells us that God is love. And because God is loving, He has to give us freedom of choice. Now as a parent, when you've allowed your children to make choices that you even warned them against, has it ever brought any pain to your heart? I can think of all the pain I brought into my mother's heart for years. She wanted me to be a Christian. She wanted me to go to church. She wanted me to do all those things, but I wanted nothing to do with it. And she allowed me to make choices that really broke her heart and broke the heart of God. But what would have happened if she would have forced me into obedience? You know, I don't know where I would be today. Would I be a Christian today if there was this force and coercion that was happening? But God allows there to be choice. And the last question that we're looking at this evening is why doesn't God do something? You know, if God is all-powerful and He still gives freedom of choice, why doesn't God do something to alleviate the suffering? You know, there might be someone here this evening who has just lost a loved one. You might be fighting with sickness or disease. You might just be dealing with internal turmoil and you might be wondering why in the world does God allow this to continue? Broken marriages, split up families, whatever it is. And you think, can't God do something about this? I want to tell you this evening that God did do something about this. Amen? God knows what it's like to lose a family member. Because He gave up His family member on your behalf. You see, Jesus was sacrificed so that we could experience the joy of salvation. Not because God wanted nothing to do with us and didn't care about us, but because God loved us so much. Right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He did what? He gave. Every time we're going through suffering, we can never imagine that we've suffered more than God has. As our heart is breaking with pain, God looks at you and His heart is broken even more. 
He sees the things that you're going through and it's a struggle. And all that He wants is for you to be able to have the joy that He offers. Notice this passage of Scripture. It's a beautiful passage. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, And for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that He might do what? That He might destroy the works of the devil. If you have the question today, why doesn't God do something? Just look at Calvary's cross. God not only did something there as an active agent, you see that even before Calvary, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, we might look at this at another night in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God promised redemption to the people of God. Did you realize that? The prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God tells the serpent that he will crush his head even though that he will get a wounded heel out of it. In other words, it's going to hurt God to take care of the sin problem. But because he loves us so much, he's willing to do whatever it takes to make us finally have peace and harmony with him again. I don't know where you're at this evening. I don't know what you've struggled with. I don't know what the difficulties are, but we can know that there's a God who cares for us in these times. You know, there's a story of a British explorer by the name of Ernest Shackleton And in 1914, he sailed to Antarctica with the desire to walk and explore Antarctica on foot. Now, as he got to Antarctica, his boat got stuck in the ice. And he was stuck there, and his men were stuck there for so long that it finally came to the point that his ship was destroyed. So they got in the little lifeboats on the torrential, or on the the terrible ocean, and they're, they're going to land, and they finally get to land. Now, if any of you have ever seen anything about Antarctica, Is that where you want to be stranded? Maybe Maui, right? That would be okay. But here they are in Antarctica, and they're suffering the the affliction of it, and and Ernest Shackleton gets a bright idea, and he says, you know what? I'm going to get back in this tiny little lifeboat with a few of my men, and I'm going to sail back to England. Now these guys are like, this guy's crazy. And he said, you know what? I'm not going to leave you here either. I'll come back. And I promise that you won't be facing this for the rest of your lives. Now Ernest gets into the boat and he starts to sail back and he's gone and the men are sitting there on the shore wondering if he's ever going to come again. It was a month and they hadn't seen him. Two months. Three months. And people are urging, you know, he, he must be dead. There's no way he's coming back. You know, he's left you this long. You're going through all these terrible things. Four months, he's still not there. After four and a half months, The men, as they're looking out on the sea, finally see Ernest coming with his ship. And he had finally come to deliver them from their long experience of suffering. Now this is just a microcosm of what God is looking at as He looks at each one of us. He promised when Jesus left this earth, as He sacrificed His life for us, He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will do what? I will come again. Now many of us, as we're in this waiting period of waiting for Jesus to come, we wonder, is it possible that Jesus has forgotten about us? Maybe God doesn't care anymore. Does He know the hurt that I'm feeling? Does He know the financial struggle that I'm facing? Does He know the pain that's in my heart? But as God is looking down, He's encouraging us to just hold on to the hope that Jesus is coming soon. See, God never desired that sin would be so prolific in the world today. But you can see that God throughout time, even through the accusations of Satan, has always been proven true. As Satan told the people that in, the, in heaven that God was fair, he didn't love his people anymore. But on Calvary's cross, it was pretty clear that God loved us enough that he would sacrifice himself in order for us to be saved. How many of you can think of that even imaginable? But God loves us so much that no matter what we're facing, he wants to encourage us to keep looking to the blessed hope that we have in Jesus. Jesus tells us, gives us an insight of maybe why it is in life that we don't have as much peace as we're looking for. John chapter 5, verse 40. Jesus says that there's some, says, but you are not willing to come to me that you might have what? Life. You see, Jesus, as we've looked through this, many of us say, well, I stay away from God because God's so terrible, and if God's a God of of suffering, and if He allows all of these things to happen, then I want nothing to do with it. But tonight we can see that God is not one who's just sitting idly while His people are being persecuted, but God is right there with us, agonizing through the process, sending His Son, doing all He can to provide life and life more abundantly. 
But the question that we have this evening is, have we accepted the life that only Jesus can offer? Have we just often been a spectator and not realized that we're explicitly engaged in a battle against evil? We have a choice to make, and God is telling us this evening that we only have two choices. You can either choose to worship God or to worship the other alternative who's trying to take the worship from God. There's no middle ground. There's some people say, well, I, I, I don't worship either. Well, the question is, is you actually are, and you're falling on the fence of Satan, right? If we choose not to worship God, who are we choosing? And my plea to you this evening is, don't wait any longer. For those of us who know what it's like to experience the peace of Jesus, there's nothing more blessed than that. And I want to say to you tonight, how many of you want to say, Lord, I want to trust you in a new way. I want to see that you're not a God who's just stepped back and left us here. But you're a God who cares for us. And you promise that you're coming again. Is that your desire this evening? Lord, help me to experience this trust in Jesus and a renewed faith. And tomorrow night as we look at experiencing this, how it is that we can experience this, what Revelation tells us. We say, Lord, I want to walk in newness of life and come to Jesus. Why don't we pray together as we close? Father in heaven, Lord, as we've looked at this this grand question of why do terrible things happen if you're such a loving God? Lord, we can have peace in our hearts this evening as we realize it's not because you're a God who doesn't care for us. It's not because you're a God who's left us. But it's because, God, you've allowed the, the progress of sin to play out. To really give us a freedom of choice so that we're not robots, so that we can choose who we want to follow. And Lord, this evening... While every head is bowed and every eye is closed, you see our hearts. And you see the ones of us who say, Lord, we want this to be our experience. We want to come to you that we might have life. I pray for those who are still wavering, that, Lord, you would help us to experience the joy that there is in Jesus and draw closer to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.